0: From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the
1: most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Tuesday, September the 29th, 2020, and uh, we have a good show lined up for you today. We're going to be getting a recap of... Some of the criminal justice legislation that uh, passed this year, Going we'll to be talking with uh, Senator R- uh, Richard Sears. Uh, he's the chair of the uh, Vermont Senate's uh, Judiciary Committee, very active in uh, in a lot of this legislation that we uh, hear about in new- various news reports and so on. And uh, we're going to be talking some about uh, legislation related to Vermont's cannabis laws, also uh, uh, some police reform measures in this uh, first half hour with Senator Sears. second half hour, we're going to open the phone lines, and I want to check in with listeners and find out what you think about the big revelations in the New York Times last couple days about uh, President Trump and his taxes. Uh, He apparently uh, paid $750 in federal income taxes in 2016 and again in 2017 and hadn't paid any taxes for uh, 10 of the previous 15 years. The New York Times got tax records for the President going back 20 years and uh, has uh, really uh, scored a big impact with this story in the last Uh, starting with their reporting on Sunday. And then uh, in the uh, latter hour of the program, we're going to be speaking with Alan Gilbert. He's the former head of the uh, Vermont Office of the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union. And Alan will be talking to us about a book he's got coming out about uh, different approaches to equality that Vermont has been pushing in the past uh, couple decades. Uh, and uh, we'll be checking in with Alan Gilbert around 10.15. In between, we're going to be visiting with briefly with uh, Leonard Steinhorn, political analyst with CBS News. I want to get Leonard's take on... Uh, on what the two candidates should be thinking and doing to prepare to uh, for tonight's big presidential debate, which, incidentally, will be aired live here on WDEV, following our own uh, debate uh, between our gubern- leading gubernatorial candidates here in Vermont. Uh, and uh, so stay tuned to WDEV for all that this evening. Uh, meanwhile, let's go uh, right to uh, Senator uh, Dick Sears. He's uh, on the phone with us from his home down in Bennington County. And, uh, Senator, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Appreciate so- it. So, uh, let's, uh, let's go back, uh, through the catalog here. Quite a bit of activity, as there frequently is in your committee and, and in the legislature on criminal justice related, uh, reforms and changes and so on. Uh, yeah. let's talk about cannabis first. Uh, where are we on the push by, uh, cannabis, uh, cannabis uh, advocates, uh, to, uh, set up a retail system in Vermont a la what they've got in Massachusetts?
2: Well, we uh, passed the bill um, out of the Senate March 1st, 2019. And this, the House passed the bill before March of 2020. Um, so then it sat for a while with a conference committee appointed. Finally, uh, during the what I'll call the third session of the legislature, um, we had a conference committee. We ironed out the differences. Um, frankly, we were also... Uh, in my mind, uh, negotiating not only with the House, but with the governor, trying to make sure that uh, we could have a um, tax and regulated system. And I will emphasize regulated because uh, one of the main reasons for having this is to provide safety checks on the product that's being sold. And um, <clears throat> so at any rate, um, we met. Several times, I think, they're the first committee to meet remotely uh, as a conference committee. It wasn't easy, Um, but we got the job done. We ended up settling a number of different outstanding issues, probably about 30 of them. But the main ones really were the House had put in a seatbelt requirement, mandatory seatbelt requirement. The Senate was opposed to that. We ended up, uh, the, the House took that out. We ended up agreeing to their version of a a, a, uh, allowing for saliva tests, but only when there is a warrant for uh, probable cause that the driver is impaired. Um, Then there were some other areas uh, advertising, um, several others that we had to work through, uh, but we did it. Um, I think that having um, 30% of the Revenue from the 14, um, uh, the 14% excise tax, uh, going to, um, substance misuse and prevention programs will help the governor, uh, something that was a priority for him. And secondarily, uh, putting a 6% sales tax, uh, on the, uh, sale of cannabis will, uh, and that, that is dedicated to both after school programs, as well as summer youth programs. So I think both of those provisions um, uh, satisfy the governor's um, proposal. I'm, I'm not sure that he will sign it, but I'm hopeful that he will.
1: And uh, as you mentioned the uh, uh, saliva testing, uh, something that uh, there's been a lot of talk over the years that this has been debated, and it has been a number of years now, that uh basically law enforcement wanted uh, something sort of akin to or parallel to the breathalyzer test they used to uh, find out if people are are drunk behind the wheel uh and and they of course have stumbled over the fact that cannabis is a different animal uh, sort of in terms of right. how it interacts in your body and how long it's it's uh, metabolites last, you know the the residues left left over in your body. You can have them in your body for quite a long time, and you're not right. really impaired anymore, and so on. There's just big differences with alcohol. Uh, yeah. How have some of those issues been resolved? Has there, has there been any progress on the science there, or where are we on that? Well, there
2: was, pro- I think, there is progress on the science of developing a, a way to measure, but at this point, we don't have one. There is actually in the bill a report. Um, on efforts to uh, find a way to uh, measure impairment, but I, I I don't think we're anywhere near there yet. It may be five ten years down the road. Um, COVID obviously held up uh, the research on it that's going on. Obviously, there would be a lot of money in tests, just like the breathalyzer. If they if science could develop one, but at this point they don't have a test. It really tells you only that the person used cannabis, um, at the time of the stop. Actually, uh, the test for, uh, the saliva will be no different than the blood test that currently is available, and I would guess most law enforcement would go for the blood test if they have to apply for the warrant. Um, but, you know, it, it, uh, it's, um, you know, it, it was something the House absolutely insisted on, um. And we begrudgingly went along with it because it required the law.
1: The um, is there more money for? I know one of the things that law enforcement has really talked up in recent years are uh, what are called drug reinfo- uh, drug recognition recognition experts. Right. And and uh, and I'm wondering, is there more money for for those uh, folks on police departments not, and so on?
2: Not in the marijuana bill, but um, there is uh, language that. Uh, would would increase and, and make sure they're geographically located. We may have enough drug recognition experts right now, but the geogra that they're not located in geographic areas of the state, so that some areas from time to time, particularly when somebody's off duty, um, are lacking uh, drug recognition experts. There's also the A ride program, which helps officers uh, to identify impaired drivers. Um, and no, and Vermont is an impaired to the slightest degree state. So, person doesn't have to, you know. Usually, we think of alcohol in a .05, but um, Vermont, if, if somebody's showing signs of impairment, that can be t- from any drug, any substance whatsoever.
1: Uh, you uh, you reside in a county which borders Massachusetts, which of course uh, has gone to uh, retail sales now of of cannabis and. Uh, uh how how is that playing out from the perspective of somebody who lives in bennington county do you, do you have do you have uh, are there retail shops right right across the border in uh are,
2: williamstown in, in Williams- or north adams,
1: uh, adams or whatever yeah,
2: there, there are there are shops in north adams and williamstown uh, reports that i have and everything is anecdotal um but twenty percent of the customers to the williamstown shop are from Vermont
1: hmm and, uh, that, and, and, and does that sort of spur you on toward the idea of supporting this as a way well, to, uh, uh. Yeah, cert-
2: certainly knowing that it's, you know, uh, you can purchase it legally in Massachusetts and we're, um, you know, Bennington County is on the border. Uh, I've got, um, at least four border towns that I represent, um, and they're all right on, on the mass border, and so um, we're just losing business to Massachusetts and I think we can do a better job of uh, crafting uh, a Vermont product selling it, and actually get some of that business um, and create jobs in Vermont the
1: uh, uh, the other uh, legislation at uh, relating to cannabis. In the uh, that's been in play in the current session has to do with expunging people's records. So those who have uh, right. have misdemeanor uh, convictions and um, where does that stand now?
2: Well, I'm um, glad you asked. We we had passed S1 S294, which was a major expungement bill, and in that bill, um, we um, we the Senate um, would have expunged. Uh, automatically over 10,000 um, misdemeanor marijuana convictions for possession of marijuana um, when there were, there was criticism of S 54 uh, that it didn't do anything for racial justice. Um, and so I uh, suggested to the conference committee that we either needed to add uh, the expungement of the marijuana to uh 54, or get the House to take up our Bill 294. And in meetings with Maxine Grad, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, she um, didn't want to take up the entire expungement bill, which is quite extensive, um, but said that she could add to our miscellaneous judicial procedures bill uh, the expungement of marijuana criminal history records, um, which they did. And this bill, um, starting on January 1, um uh the um, the expungements will take will all be done by uh January 1 2022 um, but there are 10 over 10,000 uh convictions which will take some time for the courts to take care of and so beginning um, assuming the governor signs this bill as well uh beginning on July 1 2020 um Uh, excuse me, um, being uh, uh, people who have a a marijuana uh, conviction uh, once the governor has signed the bill and it becomes law can honestly say that they don't have a conviction um, and not have to wait for the court um, to automatically expunge because the uh, holdup is the court uh, during COVID has had, you know, obviously – difficulty in in uh doing um, trials and other things that yep. are a priority for them so we wanted to make sure that the a person may deny the existence of the record regardless of whether the person has received notice from the court that an expungement order has been issued on the person's behalf and um, you could also use the procedures and current uh expungement laws um go through your state's attorney to uh, get that record expunged. I've heard so many stories of people that had possession of marijuana from thirty, forty years ago, and when they, because of the records checks required by schools, for example, when they wanted to take their grandchild on a field trip, were unable to do so because of that record. <laughs> and uh, this is, yeah, this uh, this is corrects that problem, and I'm, I'm glad that the House put it in. Uh, into S thirty four. I hope that we'll continue to work on expungement next year. Um, but
1: uh, and then your first yeah. your your little first grader is asking, or your your little first grade grandchild is asking, Grandpa, how, how come you can't come on my field trip with me?
2: Right. Yeah, that's an embarrassing <laughs> answer yeah. um, because I made a mistake when I was twenty. Yeah, um, you know. So anyway, that that's uh an important i think that's a, as much as anything a really important um, social justice issue we also give priority in s fifty four to minority uh, and women owned businesses to in the um, licensing of cannabis uh, shops retailers and um, cultivators and so forth so there's um quite a bit there I know that certain groups um, uh, Justice for All, for example, um, have asked the governor to veto the bill based on the lack of um, social equities within the bill, but I think you would find that there is quite a bit there. Um, It doesn't um, provide reparations, which is something they insisted on.
1: The uh, uh, marijuana expungement law, uh, you said, will be effective for everyone, it sounds like, by uh, January of 22, but but folks can, in the meantime, petition their state's attorney, I guess, and and right. yeah. a, and ask for uh, a, a nearer term expungement if they are facing right. As, issues right now.
2: Yeah, just to give you the date, as of January 1, 2021, a person may deny the existence of a record regardless of whether they've received notice, but they can still choose if they want to do it today. They can go to their state's attorney um, and ask that the um, State's attorney, um, expunged the rec file for an expungement order.
1: On the is, that, is, is that happening a lot? I mean, are a lot of state's attorneys getting these? Oh, yeah. Hmm.
2: Yes, quite a few. Yeah. Yeah. And I, they've been basically almost automatically providing these expungements on old marijuana convictions. Uh, one of the, you know, it, it's, uh, this is possession. It's not sales. It's possession mm-hmm. of under two ounces.
1: Okay, if you have more than two ounces, yeah,
2: if you were convicted of more than two ounces, you would have to go through a um, a, a formal expungement request. You could still do that mm-hmm. um, at, through your state's attorney, whatever, whatever county you were convicted in, um, and you know most state's attorneys have, been, have recognized the importance of expungement. And, uh, have gone ahead and supported that for most people.
1: Let me, uh, check in with you, uh, Senator, about, uh, some of the police reform efforts that have been dis- under discussion here in Vermont right. this year. Um, one, uh, I guess a couple bills, uh, took, uh, different stabs at the idea of, a uh, use of force, uh, and, and some changes there.
2: Well, S-218 was passed earlier in the, in the sec, in the fir- in the second session. I- divide them up in June um by the Senate, the House and signed by the governor and that uh, creates a policy on the use of deadly force. Um it also uh, did several other things like requiring body cameras um saying that when police data um that they that local communities if they want to receive state and federal grants need to follow the policies of the Criminal Justice Training Council in collecting racial data, things like that. Um, we also passed in that second session S-119 which uh, also created a statewide policy on the use of deadly force for law enforcement including chokeholds and other restraints. Uh, the House um, did not pass one 119 uh, during the second session they waited on it three public hearings um, did quite a few changes to it, um, and then as it worked through their system, they came more back to where the Senate was originally on S-119, and it was a, a close vote in my committee, a three or two vote, to support um, some changes to uh, statewide policy. One of the main things the House did was to um, set out a standard for the lawful use of force in policing, um, so a general policy on the use of force, um, and then um, pretty much repeated what we had done in the use of deadly force, but added um, a section regarding the totality of the circumstances that an officer must keep in mind uh, when the use of deadly force is appropriate. If the law enforcement officer is justified in using deadly force upon another person, only when the officer belie- reasonably believes, based on the totality of the circumstances, that's, that such force is necessary to defend against an imminent threat or death or serious bodily injury to an officer, apprehend the fleeing person for any felony that threatened or resulted in death of serious bodily injury, uh, and so forth. So um, it did those things in Section 1 of the bill. And then in Section 2, it uh, modernized our justifiable homicide statute. Um and uh our the history of our justifiable homicide statute that many people refer to as castle doctrine, um, what you can when you can use force if somebody um, threatened you or, or was really written in the seventeen hundreds in very archaic language, talked about mistresses and servants and so forth. So they updated that use of force. Um or, Justify the homicide section, and um, we uh, we did agree with them on this, but we asked that those sections take effect July one of next year to give law enforcement a chance uh, on the use of force and the use of deadly force to update their policies to uh, come in compliance with the new law, and so that gives them more time. Uh, for these uh, provisions through July 1st. The House agreed with us on that and, um, and we also uh, directed the Department of um, Public Safety and the Director of Racial Equity to report to the Standing Committees uh, in February of 21 on the process and outcome of their work to develop a statewide model use of force policy for law enforcement. So um, that's pretty much S-119, um, S-24 does require the Commission of Corrections to create a strategy and long-term plan to address systematic racism, racial bias, and diversity and inclusion in the Department of Corrections. So that effort as well, um, I think the legislature uh, did a pretty good job. Um, it remains to see. I, again, we'll wait and see if the governor signs these bills. Um, there was some opposition to S one nineteen from um, law enforcement.
1: There is. Uh, there have been reports over the years about uh, a higher percentage of uh, African Americans making up our our inmate population than our population at large. Why is that, and what is? Uh, are any efforts uh, underway to try to address that? Well, we could
2: we could probably spend another hour on that subject, but I think we are our data collection is horrible um, in Vermont, and um, we are trying to. The Center for Justice Research at Norwich University received a grant from the Bureau of Justice Statistics um, a two year grant to study just that question. And they're in the middle of that study and we're anxiously awaiting to find out something conclusive right now you have conjecture. There's no question that, um, persons of color and black and indigenous people have been identified more often than others, um, stops, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, trying to answer that question, uh, with a data-driven approach has been extremely difficult. So we're hoping we're hoping for this research to shed some light on exactly that question.
1: Further, I understand that there there is a uh, an imbalance of uh, inmates of color being sent to the uh, out-of-state placement in Mississippi. Uh, do you know anything about that?
2: Um, I, I didn't. I don't believe. Um, I, I don't know if that's factual um, basically people that get sent out of state to Mississippi are those with a longer sentence and whether and again we need the statistics to understand exactly why that is why are they are our persons of color um, receiving longer sentences than others for similar crimes those are all the, the data that we really need good uh, information
1: on. Sounds like what you tell me. This, I mean, is bit- we can,
2: we can, David. We can speculate. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I'm really fearful of speculate. Um, but it does indicate some syst- systematic biases uh, within the criminal justice system that are causing these problems. But.
1: Well, what it also indicates is there's always more work to do and reason to have you back in the future to talk more about this. Senator Dick Sears, we're about out of time, but I really appreciate you joining me this morning. It's good talking with you. Well,
2: thank you. It's good talking with you.
1: Senator Dick Sears is the uh, chair of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee in the Vermont Legislature. Uh, We'll be back after a bottom-of-the-hour break for some CBS News. Stay with us, folks.
3: Are you itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Dilly takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well-stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required.
0: Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV,
1: FM, and AM. We are back, and I want to open up the phone lines this next segment of the show here up until about 10 o'clock this morning. I'm curious to know what our listeners are thinking out there about uh, recent developments, uh, and also what you think uh, the two participants in tonight's presidential debate. Well, heck, let's talk about the gubernatorial debate, too, between uh, incumbent Republican Governor Phil Scott and David Zuckerman, his uh, Democratic-slash-progressive challenger. They're going to be debating live on uh, WDEV. uh, I believe that starts at 5.30 this evening. And, um, I'm going to double check that just to be sure, but I, uh, the, uh, presidential debate later on this evening also will be live broadcast here on WDEV. And, uh, you are, uh, obviously welcome to join us and, uh, check out, uh, our coverage of those two events, uh, this evening. The, uh, uh this is the, again, we're getting into the real heart of the election season here. It's an interesting development. A lot of people have already voted, uh, and, and, uh, so they may not be swayed too much by tonight's debates, but uh you know, I bet you a lot of them will tune in anyway just to sort of see what happens. Uh Certainly in the uh, presidential debate, uh, the two candidates are going to have to uh, figure out a way to, uh, I we just heard CBS describing there's a last of uh, 15% apparently of voters, I'm surprised it's that high actually, who uh, say they tell pollsters they have not decided yet between President Trump and his Democratic challenger, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. We're, uh, we're gonna have to see what, uh, what, what transpires between these two men tonight. I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, uh, I, I suspect that President Trump probably has some, some surprises up his sleeve. He, uh, he, he is not one to, to uh, sort of follow, uh, closely, uh, previously trodden, uh, scripts, shall we say. So, uh, he, uh, probably will be hitting, uh, Joe Biden over the activities of Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, uh, who has done a lot of international business dealings, particularly in Ukraine and with, uh, China. The, uh, younger Biden has, uh, been involved in some, uh, well, I, we'll have to, we'll have to see exactly what transpires here. There was a big report just recently out from, uh, Republican senators, the majority of two uh, Senate committees, reporting on uh, Joe Biden, and and uh, I saw some of the press coverage of it, indicating that they didn't really come up with that much that's new or that was, uh, uh, shall we say, prosecutable. <laughs> there's a, there's uh, a lot of associations and maybe guilt by association if you're someone who wants to uh, try to tar uh, Hunter Biden. With um, all of these nefarious deeds, he allegedly was involved with with this uh, u- Ukrainian energy company, Burisma, and also his uh his dealings in ch- in China. Um, certainly, there's uh, been a ample uh, exploration of some of these issues in uh, especially some of the conservative media out there. Um, but I, I think it's interesting that uh, when, when you get to the end of the day, you sort of have to ask yourself, well. Um, what have, what sort of findings have, uh, have developed? Have there been criminal charges resulting in any of the, uh, any of the investigations that, uh, have surrounded a certain political character? In this case, the uh, vice president's son. Um, and I, I, I guess maybe the stakes are a bit higher here if you just sort of compare, uh, like it's a chessboard or something. Um, the allegations concerning President Trump concern President Trump and, and, uh, less so um his sons are lesser tiger lesser targets whereas with uh, Joe Biden of course uh allegations are not really centering on him so much as on this son Hunter Biden so we'll have to see what unfolds there uh, you can expect the president of the united states will be uh, trying to fan the uh the flames of concern about hunter biden uh and there's a um there's uh, also uh, i I suspect the Vice President in his turn will be trying to get people to focus on the coronavirus um pandemic and on the president's response to the corona uh the coronavirus uh, pandemic um which has been uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of critics will tell you that he has not responded well to the uh, coronavirus pandemic and that that is the number one issue currently facing the country uh still after all these months of dealing with with it uh the um the debate happens uh, this evening, uh, September 29th, from uh, 9 to 10:30 p.m. Ninety-minute debate. Uh, Chris Wallace of Fox News will be the uh, the host, the moderator of the debate, and uh, uh, interesting choice there. He is uh, from a network that is uh, sometimes criticized as as being uh, biased conservative and too friendly to President Trump. But uh, Chris Wallace is a, a standout among Fox uh, Fox personalities. Uh, for his willingness to ask tough questions of the president, uh, so there you go. Uh, maybe there's a, a hope for a, a real even-handed uh, debate in moderation uh, this evening. Let's see. We have a uh, caller on the line. I believe it's Fred from Newbury. Good morning, Fred.
4: Morning. Hey, uh, no, I'm looking at the election. I'm looking at the debates, and I'm coming up with a couple words: Trump's toast. There's no way he's going to win re-election. He's not going to get the youth vote. He's not going to get the black vote. He's not going to get the brown vote. He won't get the LBGT vote. His only chance are old people, and I don't think there's enough old people out there that are going to make a difference for him. And, of course, then there's the COVID virus, how we handle that. So wouldn't, it wouldn't. looks like Trump's going to lose.
1: Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, there's an interesting wrinkle here concerning, as you put it, old people. I guess those over 65 um, the president recently uh, issued an executive order suspending the, uh, the payroll tax that provides almost 90% of the funding for Social Security, and he has talked about ending terminating the payroll tax in a second term. Um, and there 's a lot of concern about about that from people who are advocates for a strong social security system. Uh, you know the president is saying we will get money for the social security system from the government 's general fund, which i 'm sure you know, Fred, because you follow this stuff is is something north of three trillion dollars in debt right now, so uh, all of a sudden it would be saddled with a giant new expense of trying to trying to fund the social security system. Um, do you think that there is uh, any reason for Democrats to be trying to point point at this and say, "Hey, uh, any of you uh, older folks who have who maybe supported President Trump in the 2016 election might want to rethink if you like your uh, Social Security."
4: Uh. Yeah, right. You got That's an interesting point. So if he wants to get rid of Social Security, I just won't vote for him. But that's not going to happen. He's not going to get rid of Social Security. There's no way. I thought they call that the third rail. You get
1: electrocuted. <laughs> they used to call it the third rail, but you know, so I mean, a lot of old norms are going away. Maybe, there, maybe you know, questioning Social Security is not at so much the third rail anymore. This, was you know, this came up back during the Bush administration. George W. Bush was talking, had, had people in his administration talking about. Trying to privatize Social Security or make other big changes that uh, didn't go anywhere at the time, but I, you know, you, you got to remember that a lot of these issues, um, the people who back them, kind of uh, knock at the door for a while, <laughs> and sometimes it's you know decades before they finally get the door ajar and get and then get their foot in the door and uh, and finally get their issue front and center. Um, and there are people in the country, in this country believe it or not who uh really think social security is uh it's just too socialist for them. They think it's government uh helping out people who should have saved throughout their lives to for their own retirements or something or or people who should be investing their money in this, in the private stock market instead of in this government system that is designed to try to keep all is, is, Go ahead. As
4: long as we have as long as we have the federal reserve plenty of uh, plenty of paper and ink uh I think America is going to be too big to fail
1: well we'll see <laughs> that's uh that is I mean three trillion dollars in debt of course now uh I guess I guess debt is something which is a style these days uh we uh, see in the New York Times that President Trump has something around what four hundred million dollars of his own personal debts supposedly coming due in the uh, in the coming in the next couple of years so we'll we'll see how all that sugars off but but hey you know
4: what trump used to do trump trump would go to the bank and he sit to the bank and hey, look i owe you a hundred million dollars now when you look at it i own the bank
1: yeah right? i get it um hey fred uh i always appreciate talking to you but i got to get another couple of listeners in here so i'm going to jump but thank you very much let's go to uh, david in burlington good morning david
5: I just want to state for the record, uh, the board operator asked me, am I running for anything? The answer is, heavens no.
1: (laughs) Okay, congratulations Uh, on that.
5: (laughs) Yes, uh, one of my smarter decisions. Um, Hey, you know, uh, I hear an awful lot of really smart people talking about the fact that Joe Biden is ahead in the polls. I just want to make the point that this uh, observation is true but utterly meaningless. We don't elect a president with the popular vote in this country. And um, if people are wondering what the heck I'm talking about, allow me to beg you to read Barton Gelman's piece in The Atlantic. Mm -hmm. You can read it. You can pull it up on the internet, not have to pay for a subscription. Barton Gelman wrote a piece about our election system And exactly what's necessary for the person who receives the most votes also to prevail in the electoral college and for things not to go sideways, even if that's the case. So let's imagine further, not only do you believe Joe Biden is going to win the popular vote, which I think is quite a reasonable assumption, but that he's also going to win in the electoral college in order for that to matter. A whole lot of things have to go right that I think are pretty likely not to go right.
1: Yeah. Um, so color me worried. I, I get you. I, I hear you. I, I uh, I've been chastised by a piece couple I'm of listeners. About, right. I'm sorry.
5: You've read this piece I'm talking about.
1: Yes, I have, and and it is yeah. it, it is worrisome to me. Although I've been chastised by a couple of listeners to, who are telling me that this is all just media hype and we're all just trying to scare people and. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And I keep trying to explain that uh, it, 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 you know nobody in the media is the first one who said anything about not honoring the results of an election. Um, yeah, that's and, right. And uh, it's just sort of the same thing where last spring I was pointing out that n- nobody in the media was the first one to utter anything about ingesting uh, household cleaning fluids as a way to deal with the coronavirus. Um, That's right. You know, it was all allegedly media hype, but if you actually go back and, you know, who first said the words? Uh, okay. Well, Donald Trump first said the words. And, yes, yep. we we reported them, and in some cases maybe a little too breathlessly, but, uh, you know, you don't plant the seed if you don't want to see what grows i guess is uh, one one way yeah. one way to approach these things um you know, you know an- another
5: thing at work i think is that uh, people do have a hard time imagining that a great deal of other people don't think the way they do yeah. i mean i know i know a lot of people who you know we all consider ourselves very reasonable and progressive and thoughtful and we read widely, and we don't just listen to NPR. And you know, we're we're really kind of aware of stuff, and we're discerning, et cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Wait, and wait, really I got to stop you. Time. Of course, you don't just listen to NPR. You listen to WDEV. You betcha. <laughs> um,
5: but you know, we, we have a hard time putting ourselves in the frame of mind of people who think that Trump is the second coming. People who think that Trump is going to save this country people who think that Trump is doing the important job of protecting people of faith from the secular um, onslaught, people who think that Trump is a successful businessman, people who think that Trump is a man of his word, people who think that he's of high moral character. It's hard for lots of folks to put ourselves in that frame of mind. So, you know, when Hillary Clinton doesn't win and doesn't... um, get put in the Oval Office, we're surprised. Well, I'm just here to say, maybe don't be. Um,
1: yeah, I, I, I get you. We, Thanks we, for
5: your
6: time.
1: All right. Thanks for the call, David. Let's go to uh, Mike in Northfield. Good morning, Mike.
6: Good morning. Um, I also was asked if I was running for anything, and I said, hell no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that's a question that we, I guess we're asking a lot of callers now because um, – where I'm, I'm being told that I I can't be uh, I guess I, I I can't put candidates on the air unless we announce them actually as candidates and have a formal effort to to huh. do okay. that anyway so there you anyway, go anyway yeah. Um
6: I, I'm I'm uh, insulted by when when someone says that old people don't uh, are are voting for Trump well this old guy. And I'm 74. Uh, I'm I'm not voting for Trump. I never did, and I never would. Mm-hmm. He's a con man, and that's the nicest thing I can say about him.
1: Well, I, um, I I certainly didn't mean to imply that all old people are are voting for Trump. I guess what's happened is you know the exit pollers, exit pollsters, and pollsters in general. Uh, ask people, you know, are are you considering supporting the president? What age demographic do you fall into? And then they they sort of mix and match, and they wow, there's a majority of people over 65 who appear to be supporting the president. A majority certainly doesn't imply all, and and in fact, uh,
6: I don't know of you know the people that I know. I don't know of anyone who was voting for Trump other than one person, mm-hmm. and and he's not someone that uh is all that intelligent i guess
1: <laughs> well you know i i i guess um i i i don't i i don't want to be in the business of of cutting down people who are who are supporting the president um you know i think i think folks do have their reasons for uh for wanting to do that and uh and i don't be, and and i i don't uh i don't really think that there's um much to be gained from just saying, oh, they're all stupid or as Hillary Clinton put it, they're all deplorables or, or, or any of that. I, 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 basically think it's, it's the job of anybody who would wish that weren't so, uh, to just sort of try to talk to the person and, and, uh, and, and explain to them why you are, uh, you're a critic of the president and, um, you know, just have a have a civil conversation and, and- Dave,
6: all you need to do is listen to the news well <laughs> it, it, i mean he is he is a proven liar many 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 times over yeah he's he's a fraud he's a he's been he's bankrupted many of his businesses he's he's taken advantage of the tax laws if if he hasn't uh, evaded taxes he's at least Avoided them, and uh, when when he claims to be a billionaire, sometimes over, and paid seven hundred and fifty dollars in taxes last year and the year before, and nothing for ten of the last fifteen, um, that you know that makes me feel pretty bad. I'm retired and I'm on a fixed income, and I pay more than he does.
1: Yeah, you and most other Americans. Sure. Uh, I, yeah, I, 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 think the, um, the that we are in a situation right now where, um, I, I really need to say a word in defense of the media because once again, this, for instance, this reporting about Trump's taxes in the New York Times, he immediately responds by saying fake news, and many of his supporters sort of fall in line with that uh, almost, um, uh, by just by rote habit or something, um, and. Basically, you've got, you've got to remember that the New York Times, uh, lives by its credibility. It's, it's only, sure. the, the only real capital it has, I mean, I guess it owns a building and some printing presses or whatever, but, and, uh, but the only, the only real p- valuable piece of property it has is the willingness of people keep looking at it day after day. Sure. And, and if it loses that by false reporting, um, it, it, which it can do very quickly if it started doing false reporting and and without a, without a willingness to correct itself when it makes mistakes, as all human institutions do. Uh, if, if it if it's, if it starts shooting its own credibility, then it's toast. And that's true of all the other mainstream media too. You know, I worked for decades for the Associated Press, and the same story there. You, basically, all you have is your credibility and well, and I agree with you and and so you know you basically have to say, "Who are you going to believe when somebody says "Here's the news, and the other person says it's fake news well you, you've got to examine who's who's got it's more fake. at stake to tell the truth there so
6: prove that it's fake because it isn't fake because he can't prove it isn't
1: yeah and and or there's plenty- there's plenty of uh, plenty of factual evidence to support. What the allegations are in, in this in this oh, yeah. reporting that the, the Times has been doing. Yeah, I got to go to a break, but Mike, thanks for the, very much for the call. It's uh, good yeah. talking with you. Well, uh, we are uh, fast approaching the top of the hour. We're going to be uh, heading into uh, some CBS News. Going to be talking just after the CBS News with CBS News political correspondent uh, Leonard Steinhorn, and then in the uh, second hour of the broadcast today, we'll be visiting with Alan Gilbert, former head of the ACLU in Vermont. We'll be talking to us about a new book he has produced. So, uh, stay with us folks. It's going to be an interesting second hour of the Dave Graham Show here at WDEV, FM and AM.
3: Are you itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Daily takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well-stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren store practicing all safe protocols masks required
5: news radio
1: wdev fm and al now back to the dave graham show we are back and uh we are going to be uh, talking with leonard steinhorn of cbs news i believe he's on the phone with us uh good morning leonard hey good morning happy to be here hey uh, thank you very much and uh i wanted to uh check in with you and find out what do you think uh Donald Trump has to do uh, this evening in the debate, and then tell me what you think Joe Biden has to do.
0: All right, so I'll, let's boil this down. J- Donald Trump uh, has to continue to sort of amplify his persona, which is the reason why a lot of people voted for him in 2016, which is that disruptor-in-chief, somebody who's strong, somebody knows how to go stick his thumb in the eye of the establishment, somebody who will keep Joe Biden off balance, uh, and somebody who will dominate the stage, dominate the narrative, dominate the storyline, and also defend his record as president and talk about the things that he wants to accomplish. If he can do that, it will be a successful debate for him. But let's keep in mind that with Donald Trump, you should always expect the unexpected. You don't know what will come out of his mouth. He's a sort of storied showman, uh, a reality TV show uh, host and star, um, and he thinks on his feet before the camera. He goes by instinct. So you never know what will happen. Um, so, uh, again, Donald Trump has to be able to reinforce that persona that got people to vote for him, that his base loves, but also give people on the fence a reason to vote for him by restating his record and talking about what he's going to do and showing his strength vis-a-vis Joe Biden. Joe Biden, on the other hand, he has to show strength because people don't want a wishy-washy president. So he has to get up there, not be aggressive, but be strong, be confident, uh, push back against the president, um, but come off as authentic and genuine Joe, which is one of the reasons people like him. He has to straddle sort of the fence here in one sense. He has to show the passion of issues for his base, but he also has to appeal to moderates who, uh, you know, he wants to be firmly in his camp, who have been moving toward the Democratic Party, but he absolutely needs them to turn out and to support him. Um, and he, he basically also needs to defy any of the sort of uh, myths that Donald Trump has been pushing forth about him, that he's quote, sleepy and not up to the job. If Joe Biden can instill confidence that he's up to the job, that he's on his game, that he knows his stuff, that he has a vision for the future, and that he's the authentic, genuine Joe, and that he can stand up to Donald Trump, then it's a big win for Joe Biden.
1: Can uh, uh, Biden uh, apparently has been doing a lot of prep work with his people and so on, uh, whereas Trump uh, is someone who uh, I guess is more prone to wanting to wing it. Um, what Do you think that's going to make a difference?
0: Well, it can make a difference um, because you need to, A, make sure that your answers are airtight on the issues. Each candidate is going to be rehearsing their one-liners if they have a chance to give them. Um, You have to be able to sort of imagine yourself on stage with this other person. But it doesn't matter how many times you've practiced or how many times you've debated before, the fact that Donald Trump debated Hillary Clinton is irrelevant right now because Joe Biden is fundamentally different from Hillary Clinton. It's like a boxing match. You can train all you want for the opponent. You can have fought tons of other fights, but you are in the ring with somebody else who's new. It's not just you answering questions from a reporter. It's dealing with the dynamic of the other person on the stage, what they might say, how they might get into your head, and how you have to deal with that. Each campaign is thinking about the psychology of the other candidates. How they can get into their heads, how they can push them off balance, you know, how they can uh, uh, keep them sort of, uh, you know, off off their own game. Um, this is all part of it. It's a three-dimensional game of chess. Um, so you can practice all you want, but then you're in that ring with the other debater, and all of a sudden everything is new. You've got to draw on sort of your own instincts, your own knowledge and your own understanding of the setting and the moment and times.
1: This uh, reporting by the New York Times uh, beginning Sunday about uh, Trump's uh, record in recent decades as a uh, taxpayer and business person, um, do you think that's going to make any any difference in this election? Well,
0: that's a good question. Um, it, It can make a difference at the margins. It depends on how much it seeps in. Uh, Donald Trump will probably be asked about that tonight, and he may say that it's fake news um, and talk about all the things he did and all the taxes he did pay, even though what the Times was looking at was specifically federal income taxes, not payroll taxes, but income taxes. Um, so he'll say it's fake news. What should Joe Biden's response be? If it's fake news, then you should have no problem doing what every president since Richard Nixon has done which is to give us your tax returns and let us see whether it's fake news or not. Put him on the defensive like that. Will it matter? It could matter in a couple of ways. If the perception is that Donald Trump is a tax chiseler, but also not a successful businessman as he's portrayed himself to be, that it's just merely a glimmering soap bubble with nothing behind it, that his financial empire was a house of cards waiting to collapse, that could have an impact because people are concerned about the economy and they'd still give donald trump good grades on the economy if they don't have as much confidence in him that they think it's all been pr that could have an impact around the margins and the other thing is important as well if he's leveraged if he's in debt what will he do as president to make sure that his finances don't completely collapse could that be a national security issue which country holds his indebtedness his son said back you know a bunch of years ago that russia loans him a lot of money could that be part of of the equation there so again people are pretty locked in on all of this so what you're really doing is fighting for that sliver of independence or undecided in those key battleground states if this continues to get amplified becomes a big story and becomes part of the conversation about donald trump it could have an impact at the margins if it's framed in a way that could benefit Joe Biden. What do
1: you, what is your understanding of uh, how how large the slice is? What percentage of uh, Americans are actually genuinely undecided about this election right now?
0: Well, you know, when you think about Donald Trump's, you know, favorability and support, it's been stunningly stable, you know. He's right in there between let's say 39 and 44% of, of the vote. So if you sort of lock him in, let's say 42, 43 that are just sort of absolutely going to vote for him. And again, Joe Biden's support has been fairly consistent. Um, you look at the 2018 elections and Democrats had strong support. So if you say that they're locked in at maybe, I don't know, 46, 47%, what you're really talking about is maybe only one in ten voters um, around the country now, uh, and, and but those one in ten voters can make a huge difference in the battleground states. Because remember, if you add Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, and Michigan together, and the the difference between Trump winning and Hillary Clinton winning, you know it, Trump only won if you put all those three st- three states together. By basically the number of people you can put in a football stadium, about 78,000. That's not a lot of votes to change history. So, uh, you know, if it's one in 10, even less than that, five or six percent, that could be the difference in who gets elected. Plus the other side is this. It's not only the undecided voters. It's the voters who may not vote, um, unless you give them a reason to vote. And many of them did set out the last election. And that's another reason why hillary clinton lost because people who otherwise might have voted for her sat out and said "Eh, a pox on both their houses i don't like either of them so you're really dealing with just a small sliver but because the numbers in each state the margin in each state is so small they could make a difference
1: all right well leonard steinhorn will uh keep a close eye and i really appreciate your help doing that Uh, thanks very much and let's talk again soon
0: Absolutely. always appreciate you having me on.
1: I want to introduce my next guest, uh, well-known to many Vermonters. Alan Gilbert uh, has been a journalist in Vermont. He has uh, served on a school board. He uh, was longtime uh, executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union chapter based in Montpelier. And uh, he has remained active in, uh, as someone who is uh, carefully watching uh particularly police reform issues and and uh, other social justice issues uh, since his retirement a few years ago and uh, he now has uh, produced a new book uh, all about uh, different ways that Vermont has approached e- equality the uh, overall topic of equality among human beings in the uh, and and uh, the way Vermont has uh, has tackled these issues in the, the last couple decades. Alan Gilbert is my guest by telephone this morning, and uh, good morning, Alan. Thanks for joining me.
7: Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Happy let, to be on WDEV again.
1: Yeah, and uh, let me uh, ask you also, you have an event coming up this week, uh, sort of a book launch event. Uh, all of this, of course, different from traditional book launch events because of uh, the COVID situation, but uh, what's going on with that?
7: Yeah, right. Writing a book and then and then promoting
4: it—it's
7: uh, just entirely different because of the situation we're in with COVID. Yep. On Thursday at seven o'clock, um, there is going to be a virtual online launch event over Zoom. People who'd like to join that can go to my book website equal dot com. Uh, click on the link for events. And from that page, there's a link to how you register. You have to register. It's free, but you have to register to get a spot. And it'd be great to have a lot of people on because I'm, I'm, really, I'm really interested to know how people, what people think about some of the things that, that I've been looking at and I write about in my book. I, I think they're really of importance to Vermont, particularly now when we're all kind of really sensitive to inequity, um, you know, healthcare inequity, inequity of access to broadband, Uh, The whole notion of equity is a really important one that I I think Vermont's had a lot of experience in, and we ought to be able to to apply to a number of different things.
1: Equal is equal, fair is fair, Vermont's quest for equity in education funding, same-sex marriage and health care is the uh, official title of the book. Uh, How long have you been working on this, Alan?
7: Well, in my head, I've been working on it for a very long time. Uh, in reality, I started doing research and began writing after I left the ACLU, which was in 2016. And, you know, like all things, you think, oh, this is, this will be interesting, but it, it won't be all that tough. I know all this stuff already. Well, you know, you start, you start really diving into something and you realize what you don't know. And that, that, that bag gets bigger and bigger. Discovering what you didn't know and, uh, putting new pieces into the old pieces you had. Is what's really interesting about writing a book. You're really going through an exercise and educating yourself before you can really reach out to people through a book to explain something you think is important.
1: The, uh, the uh, these these uh, discussions there or, or, or debates over these measures devoted to equality in Vermont certainly uh, took up a lot of bandwidth as they were happening. Um, let's let's sort of take them uh, in order. Um, and I think the education funding issue was the first stop, right? Didn't doesn't uh, Act 60 date back to sometime in the 1990s, I believe?
7: Yeah, right. What happened was the legislature was continuing, as I described in my book, a very long fight over education funding. In the 1990s, it was getting more and more um, pointed because the formula then in place, the foundation formula, just really wasn't working right. And eventually... A lawsuit was filed by a team of lawyers led by Robert Gensberg and supported by the American Civil Liberties Union. That case, the so-called Brigham case, was filed in 1995. decision came out in 1997 that said you have to change the education funding formula so all towns have equal access to school funds. That led to the passage of Act 60 uh, in the spring of 1997, um, and I think we all sort of know that that was rough in the beginning, and the law was amended a few years later. Um, but it's still to this day the education funding formula we have in place. It's pretty pretty amazing to have the same one in place for more than 20 years. Then the second the second big 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 jolt was the Baker case, uh, which was filed, I believe, in '96. Um, the decision came down just a few days before the start of the new millennia, that is in the late December of 1999. Mm-hmm. The Baker decision said that same-sex couples have the same right to get married uh, as uh, straight couples do. Left the left the exact mode how that could happen, how can you access the same benefits that marriage has for gay people. That was left to the legislature and in the spring of 2000, the same-sex marriage bill was passed, and we all know how difficult that was. And then the third mm. issue I talk about is, is health care, and the ideas, as I approached the subjects, were, okay, look, we succeeded in uh, establishing equity for school funding. We succeeded in establishing same-sex marriage rights. We've been jawing over health care reform for a long time, why have we not been able to achieve some sort of equal access to health care as we did for these other two uh, issues? And that's, that's a, a complicated story, but really the main obvious reason is there has not been a legal determination that Vermonters have a right to health care and therefore as a right it has to be distributed equally. So, consequently, the fight hasn't been in the courts; it's been in the legislature. And I think we all have a pretty good sense—if you've—if you've been in Vermont for any length of time, we all have a pretty good sense of how long and difficult that fight has been. It's still going on. Who knows when it's going to end?
1: You know, these uh, these three uh, examples of the push for equality it would—I it, uh, mean—they they strike me as part of a continuum which uh, really goes back a long, long way in a, in in our. In the history of Western civilization, for instance, uh, uh, I'm not going to be so bold as to, as to, uh, try to speak for it. Other parts of the world, but, it, but in the West, you go back to something like the Magna Carta, 1215, you know, back in the Middle Ages, basically, when the, uh, nobles, uh, basically were looking for some power to be shared by the king. And, and, uh, the, and there was some, Admission of nobles to this sense of, of essentially participation in the most important decisions of, of, of governance. Uh, you know, you fast forward a few centuries to, uh, to the um, period of the American Revolution in the 18th century and you, uh, you end up looking at something like the, the idea that all white property owners now are allowed to, the vote and a, and a sense of participation in their government, and you actually all uh, first see the seed set down for the idea that all people are created equal, uh, even if that was not the practical case in in in, uh, in those in those times. Um, and and then you 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 continue forward over the next couple of centuries. W- women get the get the right to vote in in uh, 1920. Uh, people of color get the right to vote not until 1965. In every instance you can make a very well defended argument that why didn't it, these things happen sooner but it seems as though over time uh, we have basically been uh, inviting more people to the table I guess is one way to, to one metaphor you might apply here I, do you, I mean do these examples in your book sort of ex, uh, sort of following on the same path to some degree.
7: Well, yeah, I mean, the history lesson you just gave was pretty good. Um, you know, going back to the time of Magna Carta in 1215, all power was held by the king and the nobles, and uh, or some nobles, I should say, right around the king. And the power was expanded to to include uh, other nobles who owned property, wealthy people. And then over, over many centuries power was given, or I should say, the right to participate in government and make decisions for a society expanded to different groups of people, and in this country, as you pointed out, it was white men who, who owned property, for the most part, who had the right to vote uh, at the time of the, the founding of the country through the Constitution, and that over time that was expanded to different other populations that were given the right what happened in Vermont is, is really kind of interesting because Vermont went even one step further, in fact, two steps further than, than other states. First of all, we, we abolished slavery in our 1777 Constitution, which um, was, we were the first state to do that. So that was a big reach. And granted, there's recent scholarship showing even though we abolished slavery, slaves were still being held in the state as late as 1830. So it wasn't a perfect expansion, but it it was noteworthy. But there was also something in the Constitution, the Vermont State Constitution of 1777, that not only expanded rights to larger numbers of people generally. um, I don't believe you had to own property in Vermont to, to vote in the first years. But the other thing our state constitution said is something that we now... Call the Common Benefits Clause. And this clause, uh, which actually was copied almost word for word from the Pennsylvania Constitution, said, Government is or ought to be instituted for the common benefit, protection, and security of the people, nation, or community, and not for the particular emolument or advantage of any single person, family, or set of persons who are a part only of that community. So what that says is that when the government, when the state government of Vermont, provides a benefit to people in the state. It has to be available on an equal basis. And that was a pretty big deal. Um, People didn't realize how big a deal that was for a good number of years. But the Common Benefits Clause is, in the constitutional argument presented in both the Brigham and the Baker cases, that's the thing that both of those decisions hang on. And it was a... It, it, was a really, it was a really remarkable moment. It was like, I say in my book, it was like Woody Allen in the, the old movie from the, from the uh, 70s uh, in Sleeper where he finds an, an ancient VW Beetle that's been <laughs> lying around for a uh, hundred years or so.
8: Mm-hmm.
7: And he turns the key and it starts right up. And sort of the common benefits clause was the same thing. When lawyers found that key in the 1990s and things started right up, it was pretty amazing.
1: Yeah that that's an interesting uh an interesting w- way to sort of uh, make a metaphor out of the, out of that that that's uh, the Woody the old Woody Allen movie <laughs> that, that was a pretty funny scene too i remember that in that movie yeah we're
7: we're old enough to remember that
1: yeah i guess uh and and i wonder um in, let's let's delve a little bit more into into the um into each of these cases uh and we're going to take a break in a couple minutes here at the bottom of the hour but i i i want to um Perhaps start with the uh, uh, the marriage equality issue, uh, because Vermont really was was clearly a national leader on this, uh, with the, the first state to create something like marriage uh, for same-sex couples in the um, in the case of uh, civil unions back in back in 2000 and it just really was amazing to me to watch the kind of the mood of the state uh change really quickly in the in a, in the course of a very short number of years in in on that day in uh December of nineteen ninety nine when the Vermont Supreme Court issued its uh its ruling uh I remember then Governor howard Dean I think the quote he gave was an uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong but i'm I'm almost certain this is word for word. I'm uncomfortable with it just like anybody else. <laughs> and and it was kind of a it was it was it was sort of revealing in the sense that I mean now looking back on it, you could say it was it was rather a ham fisted thing to say. Uh and because not everyone was uncomfortable, some people were ecstatic with this decision. Uh and then the uh the other but the thing that he was doing there I think was was grabbing onto a generalized sense of discomfort probably in the majority of the population with the idea. this this idea um, you know a lot of people took some getting used to it i i think and, and uh um uh, and so you start there in 1999 and then of course in, uh, in our exit poll that we did the ap did uh, in 2000 that re- that election season found the state split 49 49 <laughs> In uh, in 2004, we revisited the same question, and if you added up the people who, who supported civil unions and those who supported full marriage, it was 84%. Mm. Wow, what a change.
4: Yeah, that's huge, isn't
1: it? Yeah, let's talk about why when we get back from our bottom-of-the-hour break here. Uh, it's going to be uh, some CBS News, a couple of words from our sponsors, and then more conversation with Alan Gilbert on the other side. We'll be back, folks.
3: Are you itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren's store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Daily takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well-stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry. Puzzles and toys for all ages. Art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren's store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required.
0: Now back to the Dave Graham Show on
1: WDEV, FM, and AM. My guest is Alan Gilbert. He is the former head of the ACLU office in Montpelier and uh, and has written a book about uh, equality in Vermont and uh, three different instances, educational equality in the case of the Brigham decision and Act 60, Act 68 that followed uh, the uh, the case of the, the civil unions and then uh, the full marriage of Bill that was passed, law that was passed in 2001, uh, civil unions in 2000, a full marriage in 2009. And, um, Alan, um, uh, you um, in the, in the case of the, uh, same sex marriage, uh, debate, um, we were talking just before the break about how the sort of mood of the state around that issue changed. Um, my theory has always been that people, did need some time and took some time to kind of get used to the idea the the uh but by 2004 4 years after so the civil unions law passed i th- my sense is that there was just a general feeling in the state that even among people who were quite concerned about it initially uh it was sort of like hey you know what the sky didn't fall
7: yeah it's a uh, <laughs> it's a really great point and I think a lot of people are still thinking about it. How, did, how, how was Vermont able to change so much from such a, a very difficult, I mean, fundamental to some people moral issue that, as you pointed out, when it came before the public, after the decision from the court, the public was evenly split, 49%, 49% for and against. <clears throat> I actually think that one of the keys to this Which has also been viewed as a complaint is the approach that the court, the Vermont Supreme Court took in its decision in Baker, saying that it was not going to give a specific remedy, outline a specific remedy the legislature had to adopt. Instead, it wanted the legislature to figure out what method, what way, it would, the state would provide the same benefits to same sex couples that um, straight couples get. And we all know that the LGBTQ community, as it was known at the time, was not happy with that. And at least one of the justices on the court was not happy with that as well. And she wrote a stinging, um, agreeing but dissenting opinion <clears throat> that's very interesting. The curious thing about the Baker decision is that about two-thirds of the pages of the decision aren't about marriage. They're about how the Common Benefits Clause should be applied to issues such as marriage and similar issues going forward. How is the court going to make a decision whether this protection that everybody be treated equally when government provides a benefit, how should that be applied in certain circumstances? One of the things that Amistoy was doing in the decision was he was essentially outlining what had become by that time a theory of uh, approaching state constitutions and using them as forums for advancing individual rights at a time when the federal government on the the U.S. level, the U.S. Supreme Court level was moving away from that sort of activity. And I spent a lot of time in the book looking at the Baker decision, <clears throat> even though people might think that's got to be one of the dullest, dreariest things somebody can do to t- just read a legal opinion, I got to tell you, it's one of the best Vermont history lessons that I think any of us uh, can get from any from from any book or from any law review article or anything else. Amistoy talks about what he calls pragmatic
6: constitutionalism,
7: where courts can't just make a ruling and say, here, take this. You can't leave it. Amistory said that courts really do their best by, quote, proceeding in a way that's catalytic rather than preclusive. In other words, what he meant was, he said, he, 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 he wrote later in a, in, in a Law Review article, the Baker opinion was intended to resonate with every Vermonter. For In our constitutional system, every Vermonter is a participant, and we all live in the same house. We will know we have built well when, in the words of the poet, quote, underneath that roof there is no distinction of persons, but one family only, one heart, one hearth, and one household, unquote. That's from a poem by Longfellow, by the way. And what Emma's story was basically saying was, the court has to be sensitive when a structure is being modified, it has to provide guidance, it has to provide ideas, it has to move along a discussion that reaches a conclusion that people can accept because we're all in it together. We're all we're all in one house. We're all before the same heart. I think people don't give Vermont enough credit for actually doing some very heavy lifting of moving people's division forty nine percent forty nine percent to what did you say eighty four percent favorable or we okay with this?
1: Yeah, it was it players. was basically if you combined people who supported civil unions in two thousand and four and those who were already you know ready then to go with uh, full marriage, uh, just outright marriage as we eventually got to in two thousand nine. Uh, if you combine those two uh, sort of pieces of the, of the electric measured by this, pole, this exit poll, they added up to 84%. I, I
7: mean, I, I think everybody has to admit that that's just an amazing swing um, on a, an issue that probably was as difficult and explosive as almost any other issue you can think of, maybe even gun rights, I don't know. <clears throat> but I think what Vermont did, even though it was... Incredibly painful at the time. <clears throat> I think Vermont, in having the large-scale hear- hearings at the state house, in having um, having a law that provided the benefits, maybe not quite the same, but it showed people the earth was not going to fall apart, sky wasn't going to fall, because we were extending these benefits. It made people get easily get to the point, easily, four years, get to the point where people are saying, what's the big deal? You know, of course they should be, gay couples should be able to, to have the same marriage rights as straight couples. And then finally, in, in 2009, as you point out, when the full marriage bill came through, you know, that, the legislature then, both chambers led by Democrats, had to fight a veto from the governor, uh, a Republican at the time, so they didn't have to get just a majority of votes; they had to get a two-thirds majority of their members to agree to full marriage equality, and they got it.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a pretty amazing day. I was there for the uh, for the override vote in oh, the yeah. House.
7: <laughs> I think for all of us who were in that chamber at that time in the House, I mean, they could not; the House could not have lost a single vote right in favor of overriding the veto, or it would have been overridden. But it turned out that, that they did have the votes, two thirds majority. I mean, it's astounding, two thirds majority on an issue that four years, uh, nine years before, had been incredibly divisive. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that, I think that in many ways, even though the court was vilified and to this day I have a, I have a story about an incident in my book that took place where um, the Vermont Supreme Court's decision was being criticized by by uh, 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 marriage equality advocates uh, as, as being sort of a sop um, that, was, that, that was thrown to gay people rather than the strong decision saying, fix it now, here's how you do it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I understand why people see it that way, but I think people don't understand how difficult a path Vermont had to forge to get to where eventually the whole country got to. And I, I, I think that's a great story. And the the real the real core of all this I think is Vermont's long history going back to its original constitution of stating, look, we're gonna have a society where if the government provides a benefit, it's gonna be available to everybody on an equal basis. It took us a long time to really make good use of that provision. But in both Brigham and Baker, we did, and I think we achieved remarkable things.
1: I think one of the things that's sort of interesting about about this, too, though, is that um, if you look at an institution like marriage, we, I, I, I think that a lot of times we kind of go along through our lives and through our history with an institution like marriage in place. And uh, and until an issue like this comes up, we don't really stop to examine kind of the philosophical legal religious whatever it is underpinnings of an institution like marriage and uh and so the the 2000 civil unions debate sort of forced folks in Vermont to do that to have to really examine well it, is this a government function maybe it's really just something for the churches and synagogues and so on uh is this a is this something that uh, the government really should be able to say, uh, you know, limit the, the, uh, the way this is done or the people to whom it applies and et cetera, et cetera. All of those questions were, were in play basically in, in the course of that debate. And it, you know, it strikes me that occasionally it's a healthy thing to go back and figure out what the philosophical underpinnings of our debates are and actually try to work through what the, what do the words mean? What are these concepts? How do they translate into, our modern understanding, even if they were first uh, established, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, and it really—I you know, thought that there was a lot of uh, very interesting education happening.
7: Well, I was for, going to say, I mean, really, what resulted was an educational process that I think moved moved a lot of people much further and deeper into their thinking about something as fundamental as marriage. And I think eventually the way healthcare is going to be solved is the same sort of process. I think. You know, health care, I found out, is not something that we started talking about in the 1970s or 1980s and had a number of attempts at single-payer and all this. Right. Actually, I mean, the debate goes back to the early 1900s. Greg Sanford, the former state archivist, had at one one, one point gone through a lot of state archives to see what he could find. And he found newspaper articles from the 1920s that talked about how Vermont maybe should adopt what was then called the Saskatchewan Plan which was the health care plan that Tommy Douglas, the, the famous politician, if you're uh, attuned to Canadian history, who started health care uh, benefits in the province of Saskatchewan and then led in the in the entire uh, country of Canada eventually to set up the Canadian uh, public health system. Vermont, in the 1920s, early 30s, considered adopting this plan as a way to provide health care to all residents in a Vermont town, and the legislature didn't buy it. You know, the 1930s were not a good time to be setting up benefit plans if, you, if they require government funds. Mm. Um, but it's, Vermont has, has a very long history in having a conversation about access to health care and why everybody should have equal access in the state. It should be a public endeavor. Um, and somehow the conversation hasn't gelled to the point that we all just sit down and say, we have to do this. You know, this is this is a fundamental right that people have, even if it doesn't say so explicitly in the state constitution. We all know that everybody should be covered by health care. Nobody should be left out. We're going to figure this out and we're not going to leave the room until we do. Is
1: is the is the missing ingredient here, the Supreme Court? Because we may not have gotten there on, say, civil unions and and same sex marriage either. uh, If if. The Vermont Supreme Court had, had not said, listen, we have this common benefits clause. Uh, this is a, a set of government benefits that come with being married. We have to apply them to uh, different populations of people equally. That's what got that whole ball rolling. Would it take the Supreme Court now to come out and say, uh, to the extent the government is involved in health care, it needs to be supplied to people equally?
2: Well, that
7: would be one way that it could happen. But so far, most jurists, legal people, have felt that there's no constitutional basis for bringing such a claim for health care under the vermont constitution that vermont does not now have it's not saying we have a public health care system like we do for schools or like we do for marriage we say anybody can get married uh, we we have all sorts of programs for people to access various kinds of health care but the state itself technically doesn't run a program So. Th- Making the making the claim that people the state is treat, p- treating people unequally is viewed as really difficult. So I think people have shied away from a legal solution, and I talk a bit about that in my book. Because when I was at the ACLU, I had numerous people ask the very question that you asked. I think eventually it's going to take a Tommy Douglas. It's it's, it's going to take um, somebody who just cares so much about health care and sees the essential nature of it being provided to everybody on an equal basis and has the ability to convince other people that we just have to do this no matter what it takes. Everybody's going to win. I'm going to show you how we're going to win, and we're just going to do it. And that hasn't happened yet. You know, twice in the last, well, in 1994, when Howard Dean and Ralph Wright's health plan failed... And 20 years later, when Peter Shumlin's all-payer plan failed, he, he withdrew it. Now people have had extreme disappointment with the efforts, noble as they've been, how they hadn't worked out. And now we have one care, which just just this week, there's been a call for that to be to be um, deconstructed and for us to start over and find another path to reforming health care. You know, the frustration is really difficult for people to deal with, and somehow we've got to get through this and just say, we're going to make this happen. And there's got to be somebody or a group of people who know how to do it, make it happen,
8: and get people to support it.
1: Uh, We have a caller on the line. I believe it's uh, Dan from Essex. Good morning, Dan.
8: Good morning. How are you?
1: Doing well. How are you?
8: Very great. Very interesting topic. I haven't, I'm I'm thinking about this and I ran medical economics for a large international healthcare insurance company. How do we account for moral hazard? Because I ran these disease management programs for congestive heart failure, diabetes, low back pain, and the participation rate despite all the services we provided. So how would we manage for that? Because Frankly, there was a lot of people that were less interested in being healthy and more interested in not paying for their health care costs. So how do we how do we weave this in? Does the healthcare look like an? In-
1: Dan, you uh, you dropped out a couple times, and, and the first time was when you, I don't mean- I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Um, we, give me the fundamental, the, the basic question again here because I lost you. I lost it a little bit. Uh, just
8: oh sure basic question is should instead of healthcare being a right, should it be more considered a um, an entitlement um, like a like um, like the right to drive and things like that where it can be rescinded because my experience has been running disease you know disease management programs is that people are less interested in being healthy but more interested in not paying the cost for being healthy. So how do we balance that moral hazard?
1: Okay, uh, let's, uh, let, yeah. let's check in with Al- Alan Gilbert. Alan, Alan, what do you, uh, what do you know about this? What do you, th- what do you think?
7: Well, I'm not a healthcare expert, and I, I, I think I know what moral hazard is, but I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely clear. I wanna, I wanna answer,
1: um Well, uh, let's actually clarify that, and I'll ask Dan to help here. Dan, uh, my understanding of this is, is that you're basically saying that people need to take some responsibility for their own health, and if you, if you have a diet of potato chips and beer uh and and you yeah, maybe yeah. maybe you uh you, you know you spend half a day smoking and the other half drinking yeah. uh or whatever you're not going to be healthy yeah. and that uh uh and yeah. and meanwhile you're sort of expecting that somebody else is going to going to pay your medical bill uh is yeah. that the issue
8: yeah so essentially that becomes the issue so how do we get and then you know honestly what we found was the correlation between the family so if if the parents were living, uh, a, we call that an at-risk lifestyle or behavior, it, it rolled down to the kids. So, you know, how do we keep the family and the person accountable? You know, I, you know, so that we understand what's going on. And I'm not talking about kids with special needs and people with special needs and, and things like that. I'm just talking about the populace as a whole.
1: Okay, I think we get it now.
8: Yeah. Okay, thank you, thank
1: uh, you, Al- Ellen. Your thoughts?
7: Well, so it sounds like answer is that how do we prevent people from turning on what essentially is a fire hose of benefits and paying for various procedures that somebody might need when they themselves could have prevented those conditions from occurring in the first place. And To me, the answer is obvious but very, very difficult, and that's that people have to be able to connect the actions they take in smoking and eating junk food and not exercising with ultimately how they're going to feel later in their lives or maybe not so later in their lives by not being healthy. And I think there's, from what I've read, there's more evidence that wellness education works if people will actually uh, agree to it and discuss the things that come up during wellness programs. I don't think anybody wants to be unhealthy and wants to feel terrible and have a chronic illness, chronic disease. Somehow we have to figure out how we can convince people it's in their best interest for them to be as healthy as they can possibly be and to keep themselves that way. And somehow we haven't been able to do that and instead we actually punish people who get uh, ill Uh, and maybe it is because they ate too many many potato chips, I I, I don't know, but somehow we can't be punishing those people, we've got to figure out a way to help them so they don't get into that situation to begin with
1: Well, that's uh, that is a nut that we will not fully crack today, (laughs) given the amount of time we have left, which is actually very little here on the Dave Krams show on WDEV FM and AM. The uh, Alan Gilbert is, has been my guest. Uh, he's out with a new book about uh, equality in Vermont and is going to be uh, hosting a, uh, a Zoom session about this uh, topic on Thursday evening. Give, give us the details on that again, Alan.
7: Yeah, so people can go to equal is equal, all one set of letters there, lowercase.com on the web, and you can read more about the book. You can register for the Zoom launch event on this Thursday at 7 o'clock, and there is, there is, there, there is also an option to buy the book uh, by clicking on the purchase button. We encourage people to try and get the book at their local bookstore or to order the book through their local bookstore so we can support Vermont businesses.
1: Keep All right. Well, Alan Gilbert, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great talking with you and uh, good luck with your uh, new, with this project. It sounds Thanks really fascinating. Yep. That's about it for today's edition of the Dave Graham Show. Uh, stay tuned uh, for Governor Scott's news conference coming up just after 11 o'clock. And then tonight uh, we have coverage of uh, debate between Governor Scott and uh, Democratic candidate Dave Zuckerman. Also later on between the presidential candidates, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Have a great day, everybody. Talk
2: to you all tomorrow.